Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm McKenna Mezzestrano, and today I'll be interviewing Dina Danone about her new book, The Jews of Ottoman Izmir, A Modern History, which is one of my personal favorite books in Sephardic studies. Dina is an associate professor in the Department of Judaic Studies and the interim director of the Middle East and North Africa Studies program at Binghamton University in New York and her research focuses on the Eastern Sephardi diaspora in the modern period. She draws on largely untouched archival material in Ladino, or Judeo-Spanish, for her research, and we're going to talk about some of those important Ladino sources today. So, Dina, thank you for joining us. It's really a pleasure to have you here. Thanks so much for having me. So, I thought that um, you could start out by telling us a little bit how you became interested in the Jews of Izmir. Sure. Um... I was interested. Um, I was interested in social history in general and class conflict and Izmir to the extent that it surfaced in um, in the secondary literature on Sephardic Jews in modern times. It always surfaced in the literature as a place of conflict, as a place where there were lots of um, taxation battles, um, as a place of instability. And so I wanted to um, I wanted to understand why that why that was. Um, I also have um, personal roots in the city of Izmir. My my paternal grandparents were born there. And so I, I grew up with the knowledge of the place, with hearing stories about the place. And so I was always, you know, captivated by it. Yeah, I, I remember reading about that familial connection <clears throat> in your introduction, which really resonated with me because um, my grandparents are from Salonika, which oh. just so that our listeners know, was also home once home to a very large Sephardic community. And they definitely inspire my research. So that, that really resonated with me. Um, so, okay, you mentioned that people have kind of, you know, described Izmir as a site of conflict. And actually, when I think about your book, one of the first words that comes to mind is assumptions, um, because there are so many important assumptions that you challenge in this work. So can you tell us maybe some additional assumptions that scholars have made about the Jewish community in Izmir, and how did you address those in your book? Sure. Um, well, I, I'd say part of the problem, I mean, one of the challenges of doing modern Sephardi history um, is is not even having um, a larger narrative to sort of challenge or um, there aren't, there weren't so many prevailing assumptions about the community. I'd say they were largely ignored. Um, You know, Izmir kind of surfaces as a place of, uh, I don't know, infamy with, um, with Shabtai Tzvi and the episode around uh, the failed Messiah of the 17th century is sort of like cataclysmic moment in Jewish history. And then, um, you know, that long period, Period between you know uh, the late 17th century and and you know going on into the late Ottoman period was as I'm sure you know often treated as just this period of decline of you know mm-hmm. communities not really worth studying um, Izmir especially um, I found was 
neglected in, in the literature because I think it was um, in the provinces. It, it didn't have, you know, the community didn't have the celebrated uh, majority that the Jews of Salonika enjoyed at one point, And they didn't have the connections to the imperial center that one might argue the um, Jews of Istanbul had. And so it was just kind of overlooked. Um, so I'd say, you know, I, I, in in making this overlooked community the centerpiece, I, you know, I guess that's one assumption that you know that I was trying to trying to destabilize a little bit. That this is a place that that matters. That you know mm-hmm. has import for Jewish history, for Sephardic history, and for Ottoman history. Um, and then I'd say, you know, what I was what I what I was really committed to doing um, through this case study is showing how, you know, the mechanics at work um, in the community actually have implications for, you know, for studying modern Jewish history more broadly. Um, And I'd say those are the larger assumptions that I'd say, you know, using the case of Izmir can help nuance um, and challenge and even, you know, even totally bracket and say, you know, these don't work for the Sephardic world. Right, right. So I wanted to also actually ask about the the Ottoman context because of course you know this is called the book is called the Jews of Ottoman Izmir um but it takes place kind of at that transition period between the fall of the Ottoman Empire and the rise of the Turkish Republic but I wanted to know if you could talk a little bit too about why that Ottoman context is so important um and what this study you know contributes to the field of Ottoman studies in particular Great um Thank you. And I, I, um, I appreciate the question because um, it's important to me, you know, it's important to me that, um, that Ottomanists should also take an interest in, in this, you know, in this chapter of history that's been kind of neglected. Um, I'd say, you know, looking at, looking at um, the Jews of Izmir, um, you, there are kind of a few, you know, a, a few main contributions that I see the work having to Ottoman studies. And the first is that, you know, when you when Jews have often been treated as a kind of um, well, I, again, as I'm sure you know, as a as a as a student of of Ottoman Jewish history, right? The term, uh, you know, Ottoman minority um, and uh, basically Jews, Christians, um, Armenians, they were often associated in in the late 19th century as basically. Uh, Basically synonymous with a kind of commercial bourgeoisie mm-hmm. um, in these Ottoman port cities, and I think you know when when you look at the perspective of of the Jews of Izmir, they were you know pretty heavily impoverished. Um, that kind of to me brings up a lot of new vistas for you know for study in terms of probing the connections between Jews and their Muslim neighbors. Um, Izmir in general, I'd say, you know, the, the Muslims of Izmir have gone kind of neglected as well, because in the literature, it's treated as, you know, cosmopolitan, which is, you know, in some in some cases, kind of code for westernizing or, um, you know, kind of... Uh, they called it the little Paris of the Orient. You know, there are many mm-hmm. little Parises all over the world. <laughs> but, right. um, every place likes to assume it's the little Paris of something. But of course, um, but you know, so I'd say you know, looking looking at the the history of this Ottoman port city from the perspective of this neglected you know this neglected community is sort of like challenges how we might approach that idea of cosmopolitanism and what that really means. Um, so, uh, you know, I'd say there's also a benefit to, you know, looking, looking at um, a case study in the provinces, 
um, and doing a kind of social ground up, you know, street level kind of history instead of a state centric, um, a state centric one. So um, I'd say those are, you know, those are some of the, you know, larger ways the work speaks to those, you know, dealing with questions in Ottoman history. Yeah, definitely. Um, and when you talk a little, when you know, you mentioned that the Jewish community in Izmir experienced a lot of poverty. I think that leads into my next question really well, which is, what were the whose voices were you really trying to center in this work, and how did you access those voices? Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, th- this is this is a, a challenge for you know for any historian. Um, but I was I was really keen to capture the voices that have gone neglected or that have gone you know un- unstudied um, voices of of just people people on the street the petty craft the petty tradesmen the craftsmen the artisans um, the beggars um, you know the people that 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 typically fall through the cracks in these histories of Izmir's cosmopolitan, you know, so-called cosmopolitan um, environment. So um, those are the types of voices I was trying to, uh, to get closer to, you know, Um, it, a lot of it is, is dependent on sources, to be honest, and, and what sources are available and, and you know, what, can, what, what types of questions can be asked of those sources. So in the case of, you know, in the case of beggars, for instance, I was able to draw on these um, defters, these, you know, communal registers where um, one of the many initiatives the Jews of Izmir implemented to try to combat poverty um, was the centralization of charity through an organization called Gabae Sedaka. And their whole mission was to, you know, remove begging from, remove Jewish begging from the streets of Izmir and then investigate um, the circumstances of beggars, you know, evaluate whether they're worthy or unworthy. And of course, there are all these like new ideas that un- about, you know, poverty and charity that undergird this j- distribution, you know, right. who's perceived to be able-bodied, who's not, um, you know, who, who, who merits help and who doesn't. And so, um, you know, going through those defters and seeing, you know, who was, who was accepted as, you know, a legitimate pauper and who was, who was rejected and, and, you know, and sent away saying, you know, you are able to work, you can find work. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, that, that was really the closest, I think I was able to get to the actual voice of a beggar is, you know, even though it's mediated through, you know, through the, um, through the society, you know, I was able to get a sense of what their daily problems and concerns and needs were, you know, like I have just story upon story of, you know, so-and-so is a green grocer and, you know, has broken his leg and he, you know, he can't work and he has, you know, X amount of children. And, and so the, the administrators, you know, they meet and evaluate the scenario. They, they might investigate and see if he's really telling the truth. They might, you know, do some, do some um, questioning of his neighbors, of his, acquaint- of his acquaintances. Um, and ultimately, you know, they might decide how much charity for how long. Uh, but it's like those stories of daily life that, I, that just captivate me. Just the, the green grocer, the peddler, um, the mender of sacks, you know, th- those are the types of stories that I think... Um, that I wanted to make sure it took a kind of, that were the centerpiece really of the book. Yeah. And I think they do definitely emerge as right in the center. And it's such an interesting look at, like you said, just the ordinary life, um, which sometimes scholarship overlooks because 
like you said, the sources just don't speak to it. Um, did the Ottoman state also have an interest in, I don't know if you want to say eradicating or ameliorating Jewish poverty in Izmir, or was it really an interest of the Jewish community by itself? Um, that's a great question, and and I I think there's there's a there's an overlap between the two, and and that's also one of the larger motifs of the book is that you know what happens in the context of the semi-autonomous Jewish community, the Kehila, it kind of um, there are echoes with what's going on you know, in Ottoman society more broadly. Um, so there's this kind of mutually reinforcing relationship between the Ottoman state and the Jewish kehila. So, you know, the, just as the, basically as a product of these, um, as a product of this deeper encounter with Western ideas about poverty and social stratification, how it, basically this is an idea that emerges in Europe and starts to, starts to um, make its way into Ottoman lands, this idea that, uh, you know, poverty is somehow a reflection, is, a, is like a, a moral failing, you know, mm-hmm. where, and that, that's something new to, to the Ottoman Empire that, you know, begging used to be um, a profession, right? It used to be an acceptable part of the landscape. And this is for Jews and Muslims, by the way, that, you know, they're in a, in a kind of religious formulation, having poverty is what enabled people to give charity, which was, you know, a religious uh, kind of obligation. And so um, all this starts to change, at least in, in Europe, in the early modern period. And then by the 19th century, we start to find evidence of it in, in Ottoman lands, where, you know, Jews start to become extremely preoccupied with the fact that there are there's a preponderance of Jewish beggars on the street. Um, and, but the Ottoman state is also, um, is also concerned about begging and, you know, takes steps to, you know, ban it in 1890 and then criminalize it fully in, in 1909. Um, so there, there's a mutually reinforcing relationship. And I, and I think, you know, what the Jews of Izmir, you know, through their activities and in, in to, to, to stem begging, what they understand themselves to be doing is not only, you know, serving the interest of the Kehila, but serving the interest of, of the city and the state. So it's all kind of, um, there's this kind of synergy between those. Right. Yeah. Okay. So what I'm now thinking about is the role of the alliance mm-hmm. in contributing or creating this shift in the perception of poverty. And I'm thinking also about another character who, in the book, who really does get a voice and who I think we get to know quite intimately, and that is Gabriel Arie. Yeah. And I wanted to know if you could, and, you know, to be honest, he he kind of bugs me because I, I read, <laughs> you know, I read the way that he talks about the Jewish community and it's just it's very harsh and he's an outsider and he just comes in and, and makes these assessments and judgments and, and it's, it's quite disparaging. So maybe you could talk a little bit about the Alliance and a little bit about our friend Gabriel. For a our friend Gabriel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, sure. I'd be delighted to talk about him. I, I do. I do feel like I know him. I've spent so much time <laughs> reading his letters, even though obviously I, you know, um, but he, you know, when he's calling him an outsider, I, he is an outsider to the community, but I also think that he perceives himself to be somewhat of an insider because he is also Sephardic. 
You know, right. he comes from he comes from um, from Bulgaria from Bulgaria actually, and he's posted in Izmir. Um, so I think that he he I think he might have understood himself to be kind of uniquely positioned, or you know, basically the, the attitude that's kind of typical of Alliance administrators in general is like. You know, he's the example of the kind of success story, the like westernized, you know, elite that can can be the one to transmit all of these, you know, all of these, um, you know, uh, civilizing um, initiatives and, and implement them on the ground in, you know, in the Eastern Sephardi diaspora and actually across the whole Middle East. Um, so you're right, he is disparaging. And he's, you know, and he's particularly disparaging about Izmir because he says, you know, um, he says, I've been to Salonika, you know, and there's something about the Jews of Izmir in particular. They, they love, you know, they love to have a good time and they're just particularly lazy. They're not in, they're not industrious like, like the Jews of Salonika are, for example. Right. So, um, and I think this legacy of, of, of conflict in the city, you know, he kind of reads that again as, as proof of, some kind of particularly oriental decline that, you know, the Jews of Izmir are, you know, you know, they're notably suffering from this. Um, So yeah, he is, he is disparaging. Um, And and I think that's the, you know, one has to be kind of cautious when dealing with Allianz material. It's, it's, it's incredibly valuable, but there, it comes with many caveats. (laughs) Yeah. Did, do you think that Gabriel succeeded in his mission in Izmir? Um, I think, you know, to, I think that the Alliance was, was quite successful. I mean, there was, you know, a, a few schools that opened, there were a few initiatives that were less successful than others. There was a kind of agricultural initiative that he spearheaded that wasn't never particularly took off. But I'd say, you know, in one chapter, um, chapter three, where I deal with the process of um, bourgeoisement of these, you know, the, 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 um, strata of the of the community that was engaged in this heavy process of you know becoming bourgeois and trying to enter the middle class like i'd say yeah on the whole the the, the alliance is going to touch you know generations of jews in izmir but it, i would i would also caution that it, it doesn't go uncontested you know there are lots of local struggles and about power sharing about you know the type of education that should be offered to children um about you know the influence they wield in communal affairs and communal politics out, even outside of schooling. So um, he he's he he's not he's definitely a force to be reckoned with in the community. But it's not that his authority is ne- goes unchecked. Mm-hmm. So speaking of authority, I have there's there's kind of another authoritative body, um, and that is the Chacham Bashi, right, or the chief yeah. rabbi. Yeah. And the book actually opens with the death of Avraham Palachi, right? Yeah. Um, so I wanted to know if you could tell us a little bit about him and why his passing was so significant um, and kind of how that, yeah, how the authority of the Chacham Bashi was transitioning or shifting during this time. Yeah, well, that, that this is a moment in 1899 that roils the community for a long time. Now, I, I'd venture to say, like, you know, obviously, this isn't the first time there's a conflict over rabbinic secession, you know, like the rabbi dies, and there's a conflict over who's gonna, you know, who's going to assume his, the position. Um, but it, this is protracted. Um, and he dies in January of 1899. And it's not really resolved for a couple years, basically, until the Ottoman state gets involved. Um, 
and uh, and so he he was a he was in, in the position for thirty years, um, and his father before him, Chaim Palachi, served um, served a long time as 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 Hacham Bashi in Izmir. So he comes from a, a dynasty, um, and and you know the Palachi family in, in general, right? They were prolific um, scholars. There's you know copious amounts of responsa generated by um, Palachis, um, and he was you know a pillar in the community and and universally i mean the ladino press is like you know in the mo- in in covering his funeral i mean it, it's it's kind of a a crucial and watershed moment in in the community and this really what the reason i decided to focus on it is because it's really a moment of reckoning and it's really a moment where we can kind of see these class dynamics um in sharp relief because what i what i found through studying these sources is that you know there had been if you look at earlier Ladino Musar literature, right, there, there's this kind of alliance that's, um, you know, there's this discourse of an alliance between uh, the wealthy in the community and the rabbinic establishment. Mm-hmm. And when you look at, when you look at what the, what Palachi did, um, he, what we find is that dynamic is kind of turned on its head. It's almost reversed where he was seen as a protector of the poor. Um, so, you know, that to me was important, important to focus on even the conflict that, that, you know, ensues about, you know, who is going to take his place, right. is fought along class lines. And there's a whole faction called the Palachistas who, Mm -hmm. you know, who their battle cry is basically about taxation, about removing regressive taxes that, uh, you know, that unfairly and unevenly burden the poor. Um, and he was particularly sensitive to that. And that struck me as a, as a pretty significant rupture. Um, it, it, I, again, I'd say certainly in Izmir, but I, I'd venture to say, you know, we might find, you know, these kinds of class battles that are fought over tax taxes, et cetera, we'll find that across the Eastern Sephardi diaspora. Sure. Definitely. Yeah. And the whole, the dynamic of the, of the rabbinate and how it plays out with the community and with the state. I mean, that's unfolding in multiple places during this time. And to me, that is super fascinating to look at. So I definitely appreciated that aspect of this study as well. So there were a lot of things that you said just now that I kind of want to go back to and unpack a little bit. Yeah. Let's start actually with the Ladino press, which you just brought up in the context of the um, of the obituary, right, for um, for Avraham Palachi. So in addition to the ledgers that you mentioned, another main source for you in this book is the press. Why is the press so important and who does the press give a voice to in your mind? Okay, great. I mean, so the the press, this is a period, the late Ottoman period is a is a sort of period where the Ladino press is, is, is exploding, you know, and in fact, Izmir was, was the birthplace of the Ladino press. The first mm-hmm. um, Ladino newspaper was, was, you know, surfaced in Izmir in the 1840s. It disappeared um, for a few decades, but then um, back, you know, once we get to the 1870s, we have La Buena Esperanza, and then we have um, later El Meseret, El Nouvelista, and there's just, you know, it, 
the number of, you know, the number of periodicals that Jews in Izmir can take in and consume is, you know, is pretty remarkable by the, by the turn of the 20th century. Um, but, you know, I, again, I, I, like there's been a lot of good work done on, on the Ladino press. And I think we, this is again, like the same way we need to approach the Alliance material with a certain, you know, set of um, considerations in mind. The same is true for, for the Ladino press. We know that they were often kind of one man shows, um, and that they were, you know, they were, uh, they were basically treated as kind of ideological instruments on the part of their editors, you know, with different kinds of um, different kinds of uh, commitments, different ideological commitments, different, you know, ideas about Westernization. You know, uh, Aron Yosef Khazan, the editor of La Buena Esperanza, which was which was Izmir's uh, longest running Latino periodical, um, he was, you know, a very outspoken supporter of the Alliance, very hardcore Westernizer. Um, you know, the the paper is the paper is kind of oozing with this discourse of like progress and civilization and mm-hmm. you know the alliance is like god's gift to humanity <laughs> right um but again it doesn't go uncontested then you have a journalist like alexander ben giat who's more who's you know whose attitude towards the west is a little more um complex than that um who you know in some ways uh you know also of course mobilizes this discourse of uh civilization but you know is more cautious about it and you know there there's one article that always comes to mind where he he's actually talking about the the garb of of women and how it's changing and you know and he says that you know civilization is is one thing but you know, there's such a thing as too much civilization. <laughs> oh boy! <laughs> um, so you know, there, there's uh, La Verdad, which which is a short-lived periodical, which is um, dedicated to science and and you know and constructs itself as like deliberately apolitical. Um, then there is uh, La Voz del Pueblo, um, which is you know uh, trying to speak to you know trying to to speak to you know certain a certain kind of socioeconomic strata in the community. Uh, there's El Comercial, which is, you know, speaking to the, the small but important commercial elite in the community. So there's there's an array. Um, there's a lot of, of media, Ladino media to take in. Um, and, and, you know, it, that in that, you know, that it's an enormously rich repository of sources to, to draw on. Um, so, yeah, and Izmir in particular um, had a really prolific, you know, Ladino press. Yeah. So you just made the perfect segue into my next question, which was um, actually about the way that women are talked about in the Ladino press, specifically related to their involvement in philanthropic life. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about women's involvement in charity, in Jewish charity, of course, specifically in Izmir, and how the press reported on that. Or it wasn't really reporting. It was sort of, they had an agenda sometimes, I think. So maybe you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, the press constructs it and disseminates it, you know, a a certain way in service of certain goals. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I mean, this is is one area where... um, the Jewish women of Izmir start to become more visible is when we start tracking, you know, the start tracking the consumption patterns and behaviors associated with the bourgeoisie. Um, then, you know, the women start to become more visible. And that's because the whole process really 
assign them a crucial role. Um, so philanthropy, um, philanthropy is one example, the example that you brought up where we start seeing, you know, first of all, we start, we have the advent of, of, of women's charities. Um, and, and these charities promote this, what, what they understand to be these kind of dual and mutually reinforcing goals of un placer y un dover, um, Mm -hmm. like, that, you know, these charity events, these balls, these dancing parties, these soirees, oftentimes there are, you know, theater productions or concerts associated with it, right? That, you know, they sort of promote two cornerstones of bourgeois life, the, you know, respectable leisure and charity. And so that's, you know, that's where we start to see this um, certain Sephardi women, you know, just again, a, a, a a minority, right? This isn't by any stretch, like the, the, the majority, but we do start to see them, you know, co- come into the picture a little bit. In fact, I could say um, a, a, a little bit of a funny interlude about the book itself is that the 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 image that ended up going on the cover, there are only two women in the entire image. And I actually um, deliberately had the image moved off center. So those two oh, women... Wow those two women could be visible. <laughs> wow, you know, I didn't even notice that. I just assumed looking at it because I saw the rabbi in the center and all of the fezes, I just right. assumed that it was all men. No, but... there are two women off to the side. <laughs> yep, I see them now. Yeah. Okay, well now, see, people are going to have to buy the book so that they can look at this wonderful image because it's really, I mean, I also love this picture. It's, yeah, it's wonderful. Okay. Oh, wow, thank I never you. noticed that. Uh, yeah, and that's, in fact, Gabriel Aria right in front and next to him is Aron de Yosef Chazan. Oh, all of our major characters. All of right the major here. characters. That's right. Um, and this comes from an 1896 celebration of La Ofre de Oficios. Like the, um, it was a larger initiative in the community to productivize the poor, to basically mm. offer vocational training. Um, and that's again something that started, something that started that was internal to the community, and then the Alliance came in and kind of um, took over. <laughs> um, so yeah, so. Those those women, I was. It was important to me that they be visible. <laughs> Do you know who they are by any chance? I, I have my suspicions, and I, I think, I, I, but I I, I don't want to say because uh, I am just I don't know and I can't confirm. But um, a figure that surfaces a lot, at least in the Alliance sources, is Madame Juslin, who who taught in the girls' school. Mm-hmm. So I thought perhaps there are two women there, and I, she is. She always, you know. She seems to to be a reasonable guess, but I, I cannot say for sure. I'd mm-hmm. love to know, of course. Yeah, that would be a that would be a very interesting postscript here. Right. <laughs> um. So, okay, now going going back to um the just in general the philanthropic space. So mm-hmm. you mentioned earlier, actually, at the beginning that kind of the the charities in Izmir became sort of governed or or managed under this centralized body but you also describe that the city was almost saturated it seems like with Jewish charitable organizations so how did they come to all get centralized like that and and how did their missions or activities kind of start changing in the 20th century okay yeah so that it does seem it, it, it there does seem to be um and I know that from like Western observers typically note that there is this, 
density of Jewish charities on the ground in Izmir, the, almost more so than other places in um, in, in the Eastern Sephardi diaspora. Um, so Gabai Sedaka, what they basically try to do, and they're started in 1878 by someone called Bechor Yom Tov Danon, no relation. Um, yeah. It just happens to be a, a common name, as you know. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that happens to um, me too. My, yeah. my grandmother's maiden name is Saltiel, and like everyone oh, okay. in Salonika was Saltiel. So it's right. just, it happens. It happens, yeah. Um, so what they what they're most keen to do is is to centralize, um, like basically, they don't centralize all of the charitable, or they're not successful at centralizing all of the charitable initiatives. What they're most what they're most concerned with is stopping begging and saying, you know, instead of giving to a beggar that approaches you on the street, or you know, the the example of Purim, the holiday of Purim, where there is a traditional emphasis on caring for the needy. Uh, you know, one particular ritual that really preoccupies them is this um, las cogitas, like these collections, this procession of beggars, basically, that would last from morning until until night. And people had just had the habit of, you know, of giving to whoever asked. And that was part of what, that was kind of a ritual, you know, around the holiday was giving to whoever asked. And Gabay Sedaka comes in and says, no, 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 that, you know, that that's not okay. And in fact, that's actually just going to promote begging and reward people for begging. And instead, what you do is pay your dues to this, you know, pay your monthly dues to this organization, and we will centralize and we'll make sure that it gets to who deserves it. Right? I see. So it's more organized. So it's more organized. And that's, again, part of, you know, that is is a, a modern kind of initiative to rationalize the distribution of charity, to, you know, investigate people, um, check and double check and make sure they're deserving um, and and centralize it. Um, and, uh, you know, it, there's a reason why this organization, which is um, which is which fails and is refounded five times, you know, it, it, it it's. It's trying to do something that I think it, 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 there's a lot of resistance to, um, that it just seems unnatural to people. And um, it's also a very, it's also a very um, impoverished community in general. So these, these organizations is, is pretty typical in the sources to see something, you know, surfaces and then it goes away a little bit because there's just not, there aren't the funds to keep these things going. I mean, mm-hmm. this is also the, the, the paradox, right? Well, the, the community basically funds itself through, um, taxes on kosher goods, but you know, these taxes are, are regressive taxes on kosher meat, wine, cheese, etc. And so they, 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 um, you know, b- they burden the poor disproportionately, and th- they basically don't have any of their instruments to fund the community. And I- I've actually, you know, looked into some of how this worked in Salonika, and it, it seems that it was not the Gabella taxes were not particularly prominent there. That there was the Pecha tax, right, mm-hmm. which was. Um, which was calculated according to income, like it was proportional according to income. And, and that, that instrument is just missing. Um, and, and to be honest, they, they're still talking about taxing kosher meat, uh, like, you know, kind of into the early years of the Turkish Republic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, so this is, you know, this is something that, you know, it, it's not a product of the modern period, right? They had been relying on gabella taxes for generations but it's in the modern period where they start to engage it in new ways you know and start mm-hmm. to criticize it in new ways right yeah i i think that that whole 
I mean, you delve very deeply into the politics of the kosher meat tax. And I think that it really just, I mean, it brings out how that could be very oppressive for a lot of people um, because of the way that it was set up. And it's just a really, I mean, it's illuminating in terms of the the poverty that was present there and kind of, I mean, yeah, all of the challenges that they were up against. Um, <clears throat> I wanted to talk a little bit about another one of the terms that appears often in your book, and that is El Pueblo. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about to whom that refers, what that, and kind of what that means in this context. Yeah, thanks. Um, so that, that is a term that I, that I started to, I started to track, you know, basically across all of the sources that I was dealing with across the Ladino archival material, like the minutes of meetings kept, you know, kept by communal oligarchs, like the Ladino press, um, letters to the Chachambashi, right? I, 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 I noticed that it became much more pronounced, especially around these, you know, skirmishes around kosher meat, where people, it, again, it's not that the modern period invents this idea of, you know, uh, the working, uh, you know, of, of poverty, right? <laughs> like, but it, it it's like a new kind of discourse that, uh, that allows them to assert a kind of authority that, you know, that's, there's something in El Pueblo that might check the authority of the rabbinate or or the communal council. That the El Pueblo is a, is a is a it's a force to be reckoned with. That you know it, it can't be abused anymore. It can't be manipulated anymore. That you know it's there. We start we start seeing like these the more pronounced discourse of rights. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is you know, it becomes more and more pronounced and across lots of different genres across, you know, across the, the a range of sources that I was dealing with. Yeah. And kind of on, on this notion of rights and that sort of language. So we, we've already spoken a little bit about how, well, I mean, we, we touched on it briefly, but there's also emerging this idea of Jewish self-governance, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? And and specifically, maybe what I'd like for you to touch on is that um, you mentioned in the book that sometimes people assume that Jewish self-governance is incompatible with modernity. And you say in Izmir, that's not that's not necessarily the case. So could you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. And here, this, I think, relates back to your first question about how the case of Izmir might, you know, destabilize some assumptions that we have mm-hmm. in general about Jewish history, because you know, in in general, a lot of the paradigms that we deal with um, in Jewish history are driven by you know extensive reflection on on Ashkenazi Jews and their particular context. Um, and by no means am I trying to flatten the experience of you know Ashkenazi Jews into one category, but these larger you know tropes that we're trained to look for um, as you study Jewish history, right? Acculturation, assimilation, uh, secularization, right? Or this larger tension between the universal and the particular. Right, the kind of like hallmark of 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 modern Jewish history is how Jews negotiate that, right? Mm-hmm. The universal and the particular, and how they manage that, you know, binary um, and that tension. And they they you know there are endless ways that Jews in, engage that. But when you try to 
you know, try to apply that to the Ottoman setting, you find it's actually, there isn't that tension. There is no Jewish question here. No one in the Ottoman state is in no way making any demands that Jews relinquish any kind of autonomy, mm-hmm. any kind of, you know, communal autonomy. It's, it's, it's just expected. It's just a presumed part of the landscape. Like there's no impulse there to get rid of it. I mean, they can tweak it, they can reform it, they can, you know, bring it in line with the demands of the modern age, right? And in Izmir, that's in Jewish Izmir, at least that's understood as, you know, make Jewish self-government more sensitive to those who, to the needs of those who are impoverished, right? Like be sensitive, you know, maybe cultivate other, you know, other types of, um, or not cultivate, but use other types of instruments to generate revenue, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, be sensitive to, to, you know, to the needs of El Pueblo, right? But you don't have to disband the Kehila. You don't have to relinquish your, you know, any kind of, um, you know, belonging to um, to the Jewish semi-autonomous uh, structure in order to be, you know, in order to be a loyal Ottoman, like the two work together, right? And they, they're mutually reinforcing. And, and we see this um, even with the meat tax, for example, where, you know, starting in the post-Tanzimat era, the post-reform era, right, we start to see Jews in Izmir mobilize this discourse of, you know, it's actually the Ottoman state. It's actually the Sultan himself that allows Jew that basically rests Jewish law from the corruption of the kehila, right? Like so, when, when, um, you know, when, when there's so many stakeholders involved in kosher meat, but like when, when there's corruption involved, you know, either on the part of the butchers or the slaughterers or the people involved in farming the tax later on, oftentimes there there are complaints that are made and you know overtures made to the state to intervene. Right. And, and, and the state is cast as the protector of Jewish law, you know, wresting it away from the corruption of the kosher butcher. <laughs> um, so in that sense, like a lot of these larger paradigms that govern the study of modern Jewish history, they don't they don't they don't bring much to the table when you're looking at at, at, at Izmir in particular. And, and I, I think the the Sephardi world more broadly. <clears throat> yeah, for sure. And I think that, again, I mean, that's that's why this is so important is because. Jewish history is not monolithic. I mean, you know, that sounds obvious, but it hasn't always been treated that way. And it's just really important to add texture and nuance to that picture. Um, So definitely, yeah, I see that for sure. Um, So I had a, I, I, this is kind of something that I'm always curious about. And I'm going back to the, all of the sources that you dealt with. And truly, I mean, if you look through the the footnotes, there are just a dizzying amount of Ladino <laughs> sources. And I wanted to know, um, were there any texts that stood out as particularly surprising to you along the way? Ah, that's, I love that question. Because there's so many texts that there's so many texts that are near and dear to my heart, you know, you spend so much time with them, teasing them apart. And especially when you're dealing with um, so the trail, you know, like, uh, transliterating, like first doing all the detective work and figuring out like, what what is this, and then, yeah. you know, teasing it apart. Um, there are, I mean, one of my favorites is actually not a Solitreo source, but it's, it's a source from, from a satirical newspaper and it's called the Meat Haggadah. Um, and it's, 
it's written in, it's published in the wake of the Young Turk Revolution. And it basically, it draw, it's a perfect example of actually the, the kind of uh, motif I was just talking about where, you know, it, it opens with siervos fuimos al kasape izmir, like instead oh of avadim hayinu le parobe mitzrayim, right? Like we were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt. It opens with, we were slaves to the kosher butcher in Izmir. <laughs> Scathing commentary, Scathing, really. Exactly. <laughs> Um, so that for sure, that is, that is one of my favorites. Um, but, you know, I, I'd say I, I like, I, I like that, you know, some of the things that are, that are nearest and dearest to my heart are the, these, um, anonymous, you know, anonymous claims for charity on the part of, of people that would never have entered the historical record, you know, like people that, you know, people that, uh, people that, uh, are, going hungry, you know, people that there's, there is, um, you know, there is an initiative to kind of provide shelter for, for refugees, um, that I talk about in, in chapter one. Um, um, these are, you know, Russian refugees coming, uh, from, you know, basically refugees from, from anti-Jewish violence and, um, Basically, the, the those who are who you know don't even make it into the Ladino press, but you know those who are uh, in need of you know two okas of bread and and some meat for for you know for this week to feed their children. Those are the types of sources that are you know that are that are nearest and dearest to my heart. Even you know especially women oftentimes don't get a first name; they're just like Eshet whatever, um, mm-hmm. you know, the wife of whoever, or the widow of whoever. Um, and so, um, you know, those, those are the, those are the voices that, you know, to the extent possible that I like to always include in the narrative. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, I, I mean, I really do appreciate when, when studies can give, give women just, I don't know, a little bit more of a fuller portrait um, because you're right, they they're obscured from the record sometimes, or they emerge very flat, I guess. And yeah. I think that it's yeah, it's always refreshing to be able to kind of add to that picture. Like I said before, with the portrait of Jewish history, it's important to add some color where we can. Um, so, okay, we are coming up on where we're going to wrap up. So I wanted to know, do you have, is there anything else that you want to make sure that we all know about Izmir? Anything else that you want to add here at the end? Anything else to add? That is, that's a big question. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'd say, yeah, I'd say in general, what I guess what I'd like people to take away is not just, is not just, you know, why it's important to include Sephardic studies or to include Sephardic case studies in modern Jewish history, right? Like that, that's not enough just to say, okay, now we have a fuller picture because we're talking about these other communities that have gone neglected, but it's to use their experience to actually change the questions we ask, Mm -hmm. you know, so to not just like apply, you know, apply sort of reflexively a lot of these paradigms that, you know, that we just take for granted, but to say, to even question the paradigms and say, you know, we need a whole new set of questions. We need a whole new set of interpretive tools to study the Ottoman Sephardi experience instead of looking for evidence of, you know, of, of trends that we've tracked in other places and other you know, other places that have received, you know, much more attention. Um, So I'd say it's not just like, okay, now we've done our job because we're telling a more diverse story. It's to allow their, allow their experiences to actually change the story we tell, not just to insert them. Very well said. Couldn't, couldn't agree more. So 
Okay, Dina, as I said, I really, I love this book. I think it's been such an important contribution to the field. Do you have anything in mind for your next project? And can you tell us anything about it? Sure. Um, well, it actually draws on what, what we were discussing just a minute ago about women. Um, I, I'm starting a new project on the marketplace of matchmaking, marriage, and divorce in the Ottoman Ooh. Sephardi world. Yeah. And I, again, I'm, I'm drawing on a lots of um, Ladino archival material. Um, and, you know, here I, I basically looking at, at, um, at the, at the, at the marriage market as this kind of meeting point where, you know, Ottoman Jewish families of different, you know, different social classes kind of meet and negotiate um, and, and pursue varied goals. I mean, so the, the first, the first part of this has been um, a really detailed look at Trousseau inventories, um, where I've had to learn lots about um, different Ottoman embroideries and velvets and textiles. Yeah. <laughs> um, and basically trying to like uh, to get at in a more concrete way like what is the what is the capital that um, a Sephardi bride was expected to have uh, on the marriage market in the 19th century you know and and not just the material financial capital but the cultural social capital so that's you know that that's kind of where i am right now i'm deep in trousseau lists and and dowry <laughs> negotiations <laughs> wow okay well that Really sounds fascinating. And I, I mean, I can't wait to see more of that. That sounds great. Okay. Well, Dina, it was really a pleasure to talk with you today. Um, really appreciate you taking the time to educate us all about the Jews of Izmir and just let us into this world a little bit. It's my pleasure. Um, yeah. Great. Okay. So once again, I am McKenna Mezzestrano, and this was Dina Danone on her new book, the Jews of Ottoman Izmir.